Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaHealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. ever thought about why people act the way they do? Why are some people more difficult to deal with, while others are always pleasant? Let's find out together. Welcome to Human Behavior. What a trip. Your host is Dr. Jonathan Brower. Our program combines expert guests with people just like you who have questions or comments. We'll have fun exploring human behavior. Now, here's your host, Dr. Jonathan Brower. Hello, everybody. This is Dr. Jonathan Brower. My show is called Human Behavior, What a Trip, and we're going to have a wonderful trip today with Dr. Michael L. Leviton, who's a psychotherapist in Southern California, and um, welcome to the show, Michael. Hello, doctor. It's uh, Dr. Michael Leviton. Pretty close, though. I'm very happy to be on your show, Jonathan. Good. I'm glad glad you're here. So um, what I'd like to do at the beginning of the show is... uh, hear from my guest, you're the guest today, um, basically what was your childhood like, what were your parents like for you, siblings, and, and then um, uh, you know, what, tell a little about what happened with you growing up and then how you segued into becoming a psychotherapist specializing in family violence. Right. Well, my childhood anyway. was kind of um, a bit mysterious. And that led to my curiosity, the natural curiosity of a child. But I had a special curiosity because um, my mother died uh, before I was three years old. Oh, my. She was sick. Yeah, she was sick. Uh, this is all obviously what I've heard. Yes. Various people trying to put it together. Um, because it was so devastating for family members that they couldn't really talk to me about it. But she, she got sick just after I was two years old, died before I was three. My father remarried a year later, and um, I was told by my father and new you know, stepmother that uh, she was my real mother. They, they, they let you believe your stepmother was your biological mother? Well, I was told that. <laughs> That's the key. I'm glad you brought up that I didn't fully believe it. It never felt right to me growing up. Yeah, it didn't feel right because it wasn't right. Right, it wasn't right. So it wasn't until I was uh, six, seven years old yeah. that uh, a cousin of mine, uh, in a mocking fashion, said, your mother's dead, your mother's dead. And that kind of was a tragic moment, traumatic moment for me, but also a, a very revealing one because it confirmed my feelings that this was not my real mother didn't feel right to me. Yes. And um, so, in other words, from early on, my earliest memories are wondering what happened to my mother. Yes. And a sense, who is this woman who they're telling me is my mother, and it doesn't feel right. 
So I was born with all this intense curiosity, wondering about oh my, God. my own origins. Yes, I have a question to ask you about this. So um, when, you, when your father remarried, was your stepmom a, a, a very nurturing mom for you, or was she somewhat aloof? She was quite distant. Um, it was a tough situation for her that she was coming into a, um, a unit that was already established. As we, you know, as we all know, that the child, the way it you know, yeah. normally is, quote, supposed to work, comes into a unit of uh, mother and father, into yes. a family unit. But here the stepmother is coming into a unit with me and my father, and she felt very left out, and she was very distant with me, and I, I felt she resented me for many years. Yes. And um, so, uh, no, she was not uh, nurturing. It was more... Um, Everyone, it felt like everyone was sort of growing up together. Yes. <laughs> but I, I had the best excuse. I was a child. Yeah, so um, here's how I'm imagining this happened. Your father and his uh, second wife yes. avoided uh, red flags. Your father dismissed your, his new wife even before when they were just dating. He... Um, dismissed parts of her that were distant. Did you say dismissed? He di yeah, he dismissed the, some uh, red flags that were coming from her that he wanted to avoid. Yeah, my father was, was quite, yeah, I mean, it's a good point. He was quite avoidant of dealing with her, but yes. he was also, um, you know, the whole thing with uh, really unmourned grief. Yeah, so it never so grieved father... that he lost his first wife. He tried to avoid that as well. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. um he had all this pent up feelings inside that he tried to keep a lid on and did for the most part. Yeah, but but it backfired because you you definitely got the vibes that there was a lot of things that had to be uh forbidden to talk about. Yes, exactly. Because yeah, even when I did find out, I'm glad you brought that up, Jonathan. Yeah. Even when I did find out, I was then forbidden. Okay, don't say anything to any of your friends or classmates oh, or teachers. Don't you know? Don't say anything outside the family. That's terrible. And uh, that's the way it went in my early years. Yeah. But I had this, as I said, curiosity about who I was, and yeah. and um, you know, years later, I'd never, in terms of becoming a therapist. You know, one of the essential ingredients, foundations of being a therapist is to have a natural curiosity about people, about origins, about motivations, about yes. what makes us all tick. Why do we do what we do? Exactly. And I was fueled with that from early on in life. So it, it seemed very natural for me. You know, this is easy looking back years later yeah. to see how it evolved into being a therapist. Yes. And in terms of you asked me about getting involved in family violence, yeah. you know, on the surface, you know, I was at a counseling center and I was volunteering to take those new patients as the newest intern and very eager way back when I started. Yeah. And uh, some of my earliest patients were women yes. who were victims of domestic violence, though they didn't use the word violent or they didn't even use the word abuse. I got the feeling early on they did not feel safe with yes. their husbands, yes. uh, with their child alone with the husband. And that fueled me to 
again, my curiosity to, to find out more and learn more. And I realized that the area of domestic violence is one of, it's very crucial yeah. and it's very immediate. You have to figure out things very quickly to help people if there are, like you said, red flag situations. Yes. So, um, Jonathan, if I can say, yeah. you know, at a, at a, on a deeper level, because when we look back on our lives, it's easy to see things, how they fall into place yes. or don't. But on a deeper level, my, going back, my father and my stepmother were warring constantly. About what? Arguing and yelling and threatening to leave. And there was a bit of physical violence. It was mostly yelling and throwing things. Who was the thrower? Say it again. Who was the thrower? Well, was she was the, was the thrower the and what? he was the grabber. She'd throw and yell, and he'd grab her and restrain her. And, and I would run in as a little boy. Uh, I was four or five years old when she came on the scene and try to intervene and actually put myself between them. And they'd right. yell at me, get back to your room, get out of here. And, you know, one or the other would yell at me, and I'd run back to my room. And then I'd come out a little bit later because they were so noisy and oh my God. chaotic and, you know, frightening to me, very frightening as a little boy. Of course. So when I look back now, those were my first efforts at doing, trying to do something about domestic violence. Yes. So, and Jonathan, so, tell you the truth, I think I'm a lot more successful now yeah. than I was as a little boy trying to intervene there. Of course. So are, are, are your dad and your stepmom still alive? No, they just, um, my dad died just a few years back, and my stepmom died uh, a few months ago, really. I see. So... Um... As you were growing up and became an adult, did you have much contact with them, and did you enjoy them? Uh, yeah, you're asking some good questions here. No, I had contact. I have a younger brother, and, you know, we had a, it's a family unit. We felt like a family. We did a lot of family things together. No, but I'm asking you very specifically, as an adult, how, how were you with your dad, and how were you with your stepmom, and how were they with you? Well, there was, you know, some, uh, how can I say, a bit of, distance and and you know i think there are certain seminal moments in our lives and for me i i actually wrote a play oh really and um about my family and i wrote that play maybe uh, 20 years ago and it was about my family and there was, someone played my father and someone i played me and i was acting at the time and and we had, you know, someone playing my stepmother and and we acted out scenes and i tried to present it i was the author of this play is I was trying to present everyone's point of view. Have you ever considered trying to see if you can get the play uh, produced? Well, it was produced at a very good theater back then, but, well, you know, you know bring it out of cobwebs and produce it again is certainly a possibility. So you had I'll this, tell you uh, something. When I wrote this play, I yeah. felt it was very real and represented all sides. It was very real because you were writing about your family. And my, But um, my... Uh, Stepmother and my father came out to see it. They were yeah. on the East Coast at the time. Yeah. And um, after they saw the play, I recommended they didn't see it. Yes. I'd read them scenes from it the night before they came to the show. Yeah. And um, they did see it, and then uh, we didn't speak for a year. So. <laughs> who, well, who initiated reconnecting after the year? Well, my dad did, really. My dad did, really. It was almost a year went by. Wow. And I had very little contact, hadn't seen him at all, very little speaking. Yeah. And, um, you know, it was, here I am, you know, trying to tell my truth and trying to, trying to tell everyone's truth, but my dad's way was not to, was to avoid, really, and not to bring up the past. And my yes. 
original mother and all the stuff that went on, and here I am bringing this out, and, you know, they, they, I'm sure they felt uh, humiliated or, you know, they felt very bad about it. And um, I said before, these seminal moments in our lives, that distance that was created by that, it really helped me that I put out some truth to them. I had talked to them before or tried to, but yeah. putting that play out. Yeah. Um, and then once we reconnected, and this is a very important journey, I believe, for many children yes. they, as they go with, deal with their parents. Once you reconnect, we reconnected on a more adult-to-adult level. Yes. It, was no longer, it no longer felt as much you know, parent and child. So sometimes you know, these journeys... And, you know, in olden times, it was more ritualized, where the boy leaves his town and goes out and has adventures. There are obviously many stories, novels, movies about these kind of things. You know, he goes off on his own, the Knights of the Round Table, etc., feudalism and all that, the Crusades. And people come back, and they uh, reconnect as adult to adult. And then, at that point, I felt there was a more sincere, genuine relationship. So in later years... Things were much better with me and my family. Yeah, so they were better, but still, um, my guess is there were certain things that your parents didn't want to talk about. Yes, and I'm, my way has always been different. And, you know, here I am as a, as a yeah. therapist, and what do we do? We, we try to help people bring out things, you know, their deepest secrets and their most repressed traumas. And, yes. you know, it's, let's, let's unearth them so we can do something about them. Yes. So uh, I'll just tell you very, very quickly. My father was a surgeon, and he uh, had low-grade depression. Mm, okay. And my mother was highly anxious. So what are my specialties? Anxiety and depression. Oh, they, well, I look mean, at we, that. We tend to go to what we know. So, I mean, that's, that's why I say there are, when I tell the story of how I got involved with family violence. Yes. You know, there's different. There's the you know what happened as an intern, but there's the deeper, you know, the deeper stuff that all of us deal with, and that yes. motivates us. You know, and we don't realize this till sometimes later in life. Yes. So, uh, where are you in the order of your siblings? I have a younger brother, and that's it. I see. So, how old was your younger brother when he when? Uh, he, so he he was bo- he was uh, born. I am the only child of um, my uh, my mother, my you know my original my parents' uh, union. Let's say. Oh, I see. So the stepmother of yours is the uh, mother of the second child. Exactly. Yeah. I get you. And uh, my my brother and I are closer than we've ever been as well. Yes. For the last, you know, is you know that's hopefully people mature in life and uh, are able to work things out and. Uh, yes. You know, I feel you know a lot of. You know, at this point, you know, a lot of love with my, um, with everyone. Yeah. So, so was your, when you were a kid, you were a couple of years older than your brother. Did the two of you have some kind of bond where you tried to help each other and help each and, uh... Well, I'm seven years older than my brother. Oh, seven years older. So it was more of me, you know, I babysat for him and looked yeah. out for him and... Yeah. You know, try to help him along and... And when you were advice, but sometimes that didn't work out too well, but he had to learn things on his own. But, uh, yeah, yeah so what we're close now. We're very close now. But when you, were, uh, when you were, let's say, 12 and he was 5, right? Um, 
at times was it a burden for you to be taking care of him, or did you love doing love doing it? Or? I love doing it. In really? fact, you just as you asked me that question, I just thought of a early memory when Definitely. he was born, and he was a few months old, and I was just seven. Yes. And um, you know, I did. My parents, you know, my he would go to sleep early, obviously as a baby, and yes. I'd go to sleep. My parents would be watching television or reading or playing Scrabble in the other room, and uh-huh. sneak into my brother's room when he was a baby. Yes, you wanted to be with him. And I would just kiss him on the cheek because when he was born, yeah. he got a lot of attention. Yes. And, you know, we think about sibling rivalry. In my case, it was really reversed. I was thrilled yes. that he was getting so much attention. It diverted them from fighting so much and any attention, any problems they had with me, because I was sometimes often blamed for the cause of their arguments. Yes. But um, so when he was born, he got so much attention, and it changed the whole dynamic of the family. I thought in a very in those early years in a positive way. I was very grateful. But apparently, there was something inside you that um, that helped you want to be loving and caring to this younger brother. Uh, yeah, I mean, my earliest when I think of it now, consciously, it was just relief that he was getting so much attention, and. As I said, it was a more peaceful, you know, always focused on nurturing him in those early months, those first couple of years. That's what I recall. Yeah. And so I was very much into taking care of him when I could, yeah. I still remember his first steps that he took, you know, to walk. Oh, really? Things like that, yeah. That's beautiful. So I'm, I'm imagining, tell me if this is right or wrong, that at times when um, your stepmother, your brother's, Mother, right. Um, when you, when your father and his second wife would be would be arguing and fighting, I would imagine at times you would be protecting your younger brother, trying to help him stay away from the chaos between his parents. Uh, yeah, he would um, see. He would stay in his room. Uh huh. When he was obviously very young, he'd be napping or something, and then he'd yeah. be playing or something. But I was the one who would run out and try to do something about it. Yes. I mean, he has, you know, I've spoken to him as, as adults, and he has memories of all the, the fighting, but I think he just, he felt more secure in the house than I yes. did. He was able to, I was a very quiet kid in the house, afraid to paddle the boat, you know, or shake the, whatever the expression is. But my brother was, you know, he was pretty outgoing. He felt more secure in the family. It wasn't as, I don't think it was as threatening to him, the chaos. Well, I guess he had more secure. He was more secure because his mother was able to be more of a mother to him than she was a stepmother to you. Well, I, I think. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of truth in what you're saying. I think it was just that he felt secure with her as his yeah. as his yeah. mother. Yes. To me, it was like always a... somewhat in question, and yeah. And, and, and uh, this goes to the the, the core of trauma. And you know PTSD, but because yeah. I had lost my mother, yeah, I tell you what, we were already so shaky with me in terms of having a mother that I was very shaky with my stepmother all yeah. those years. We're up for our first commercial. Great. So uh, we're going to come back in a minute and a half or so, and we shall um, continue. Okay. Thanks, Jonathan. Okay.
Legal Shield. Total access. Everyone deserves legal protection. With Legal Shield, everyone can access it, no matter how traumatic or trivial. Check out players.buildinglastingsuccess.com and jjbrower.com. Call Jonathan at 805-535-5111. DefeatAnxietyNow.com is geared to help people suffering with anxiety and depression. Intensive, short-term, dynamic psychotherapy helps many people get to the absolute core of their problems and resolve them. Call Dr. Jonathan Brower at 818-707-4557. Interested in investing in real estate, leveraging other people's money? Call Jonathan Brower and he can give you some more information. 805-535-5111. That's 805-535-5111. SportsPsychologySociology.com can help you improve your ability to excel and enjoy your athletic endeavors. Call Dr. Jonathan Brower at 818-707-4557. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Human Behavior, What a Trip, with Dr. Jonathan Brower. If you have a question or comment for the show this week, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's toll-free, 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to jbrowerphd at yahoo.com. Now, back to Human Behavior, What a Trip. Hi, everybody. This is Jonathan Brower with Human Behavior, What a Trip, and I'm with my guest, Michael Levitan. He's a PhD, and he has a psychotherapy practice in West Los Angeles. And, um, Michael. Yes. uh, In case people want to reach you, what's your website they could... uh... My website is um, michaellevitan.com, M-I-C-H-A-E-L-L-E-V-I-T-T-A-N. Dot com. Okay. And, uh, you know, I also specialize in anger management, child abuse, post-traumatic stress. This coming Saturday, uh, I teach a lot of seminars all around town. Uh-huh. And uh, sometimes out of the city, out of the L.A. area. Yeah. And uh, this Saturday I'm teaching at UCLA. I'm doing a seminar on integration of trauma and addiction. Yes, it sounds great. Looking at it from various angles of what happens in our mind, in our emotions, in our brain, and there's a lot of similarities with trauma and addiction. Uh, you know, I've also uh, authored a chapter in a book that was recently published. Uh, it's uh, dealing with child abuse, this, this uh, section of the volume. Uh-huh. And I wrote that about the history of infanticide uh-huh. uh, going way back in, in, in time. How Tell people what infanticide means in case some of them know. Infanticide is the killing of, a, of an infant. Yes. And uh, children were routinely put to death early in early societies for sacrifice because uh, uh, boys considered more valuable than girls. So there was the practice of femicide, putting you know young infant uh, girls to death, and you know anyone disabled and things like that. A lot of superstitions, a lot of it's, it's just you know pretty horrific practices. But um, along in that chapter. Uh, I also talk very much about the advocates for children throughout history. Yes. Uh, people who've uh, really sacrificed to help children along the way. And uh, the other thing I wanted to mention is that um, 
I recently, um, being in uh, Los Angeles near the Hollywood area, uh-huh. I mean, I'm not that far from Hollywood, but um, yeah. I was chosen, selected um, to do a, an anger management show, a reality show. Oh, on TV. We actually shot a pilot, uh, and uh, I think the producers are shopping it around. And I very much like to do a show to help people manage their anger to have safer relationships. And I think this is so important in the world because a child, as I mentioned my childhood before, a child needs to grow up in a safe environment to fully uh, become who they are and flourish and blossom and contribute to society. And it starts out in the home. And that's um, why I, uh, doing a show like this is very important to me, a show to help parents basically deal with their anger so yes. they can help their children. Well, I hope you end up getting the show. Yeah. Well, we did the show, and it needs to sell to a, uh, you know, one of these networks. Great. But I think the time is right for something like this. Yes. But there's so much violence out in the world, whether it be between countries or in our cities or in schools and workplaces, it's yes. uh, pretty horrific. Yes, it is. So, um, you know, I'm pretty dedicated to doing something about it. Yes. Well, I'm glad. So um, how, old were, how old were you when you decided to uh, become a therapist? Well, as I said, I had done uh, some other things before that. I was a teacher. I had uh, done acting for a few years, uh-huh. various things, plays and a little bit of television. And... Um, I had this burning desire inside. It, I didn't feel the burn early on in life, but as, as I, you know, as I matured, I felt this burning desire to really uh, that early curiosity fueled me. Yeah. I want to learn more about psychology, and I just started reading on my own. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Reading, going to seminars about psychology and um, human behavior. What a trip! Yes. I love the title of your show, Jonathan. And, um, you know, what makes people tick, why people do what they do, how we can improve ourselves, but what's really underneath it all? Yes. To me, um, it's just one a simplistic way of looking at the whole practice of psychotherapy is what's really going on. Exactly. To me, that's more real to find out, you know, what's yes. motivating people beyond the surface things that we yes. talk about with each other. So a way did you... Uh begin your quest to become a therapist? Say it again? At what age did you decide you wanted to begin your well, graduate? It was probably um, early 30s that I started really thinking about it. Uh-huh. Went back to uh, uh, graduate school. Yeah. Uh, probably in my mid, uh, mid-30s, I think it was. Uh-huh. And, um, and I've been doing it ever since, and I'm very yeah. involved with it. Uh, I mean, I'm very passionate about what I do, helping people in my office and teaching, doing seminars, doing writing. I very much belong to various organizations. I'm doing, I think, you know, we do what we can, and I'm doing what I can to make it a safer world. Good. So, um, regarding domestic violence. Yes. um, How common would you say the problem of domestic violence is in this country? I think it's a very common problem. Uh, I'm not going to quote statistics right now. Yeah. Uh, but every year it, it seems to, there's not much variation. In other words, in terms of number of arrests for uh, men and for women, especially uh, since the early to mid-90s when they started across the country having um, 
domestic violence uh, state assembly bills passed that they made it a um, came up with diversion programs originally it was called yeah. where people rather than just put them in jail you know develop programs to help batterers and yeah. uh, you know the shelter movement also helping women who were victims of domestic violence yeah so um, uh, it's a very common problem every year and this is approximate but it holds fairly constant uh, there seem to be just in the United States anywhere from 1,200 to 1,500 homicides where women are killed by their uh, spouse, former spouse, boyfriend, former boyfriend, yes. and about one-third of men, one-third of that number, yes. uh, males are uh, killed by their former or current uh, wives or girls. I have a very specific question. Yes. Regarding. So um, when we talk about domestic violence, generally people think of someone being physically harmful to them. But um, there are some people who are, they will yell at their child or their spouse, you know, with a lot of uh, decibels, but they're not doing any actual damage to their body. Mm-hmm. Well, 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 they may be, if the sound waves are loud enough. So what's your, what's your take on that? Is domestic violence... It can involve where no one's getting physically pummeled. In other words, if they're just, if they're just screaming at the top of their lungs for half an hour. Yeah, well, you know, there's uh, legal definitions, and what people can be arrested for is mostly the physical, stalking, sexual yeah. abuse. Those are the things people legally, uh, you know, get arrested for that. But in terms of what domestic violence is, it's there's such a thing as verbal violence and emotional yeah, psychological so. violence economic violence it's it's more than just the physical it's it can be, it's a usually has to do with a pattern of yeah. controlling behavior where well, what, the either the spouse or the children don't feel safe to be themselves you know the phenomenon walking on eggshells yes you know, where, where you don't feel safe around the person. You're reactive. And that, course, yeah. that, that goes to our, uh, our instinct for survival. If yeah. someone has been uh, brutal with us or physical with us or just yelled in our face, yeah. by instinct, we're geared to survival. So yeah. we're going to be reactive. As soon as that person, we hear their voice or they get red in the face or they make clench a fist, yeah. we, we get attuned to body language. So it's be way beyond the physical. We're reacting on a, on a visceral level, and it affects our mind, our development. You know, a child growing up in this environment is very much uh, keyed into being safe yes. by instinct as opposed to having the joys of just playful innocence of a child. Exactly. So um, what's the distinction, if any, as you, as you know it, or you use it, between... Uh, Domestic violence and an abusive relationship. Do the two, does one equal the other, or are they somehow different? There's really not much distinction. Okay. I mean, uh, domestic violence is, you know, there's various definitions. I mean, for most people, think of it as, as purely a physical phenomenon. But, um, you know, the people who, you know, us who work in the field and trying to help people, to really help people, you have to broaden definitions broaden definitions because, you know, our natural tendency is to kind of, uh, what's the word, constrict 
Yes. You don't want to think we're involved in a violent or abusive relationship. Yes. So we want to say, oh, we want to make excuses for our partner, make excuses for ourselves for staying with a partner like that. Yes. We, want, we don't want to think we're in a relationship like that and label it as such. Right. Uh, so we kind of, the tendency with most people is restrict it and, and say, no, no, that's not really, oh, it's just happened once or uh, it wasn't that bad yes. or I didn't really get hurt or he yes. didn't really hit me. He just grabbed me and pushed me, you know. So we're trying to, we don't want to think of ourselves that way. Yeah, so, so, we, I, I, so when I help people, I try to expand their definitions of what abuse is, physical, verbal, emotional, psychological. Yes, so, but some of the, some of the abuse, uh, it can be hurtful, but it's not, against the, it's not a crime as we would normally think about it. So uh, the example I would use, I had a patient once who, um, starting around the age of five, he had a stepfather who was cruel, and his stepfather often would tell the kid, uh, you should have been aborted. Mm. So it wasn't just one time. It was, you know, many times a week, you know, for many years. So uh, that had to be extremely cruel, but it's not against... I don't think anybody could be prosecuted for that. No, as I said before, certain things are, you know, legally... Yeah. Uh, there's legal definitions, and then there's what, you know, we know in the field is what abuse is. And yeah. when you're bringing up there that instance of the stepfather saying you should have been aborted, I mean, you know, the, unfortunately, there's a lot of children who hear that kind of thing. It, uh, yes. I wish I never had you, or why did I have children, or those type of things. And whether you hear it many times, you can hear it once, and it's sort of ringing in your ears for years and years of your That's life. That's a good analogy. Because, However, if, if you're told you should have been aborted, if you're told that let's say, five times a week for 15 years, there are multiple echoes. Well, I'm saying you could be told it once and never forget it. I know, I know. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. okay, you're agreeing, yeah. I mean, those are the kind of things that stay with you. Certain things just stay, oh, of course. you know, in your mind, and, and it, it plays on your self-esteem, your, your uh, ability to connect with others, you know, yes. your self-image, I mean... Uh, it's devastating. Yeah. And then, um, why don't you talk a little bit about um, different kinds of cycles of domestic violence? Well, you know, there's a standard cycle. It's thought of as the um, tension-building stage. Tension yeah. builds. It's the first stage. The second stage is an acting out or explosive where people, you know, have been holding on to these tensions and resentments. Yes. And most people are, you know, really starts, most people have difficulty being assertive. Yes. So they stuff it and they make excuses or they act it out in a sarcastic, passive-aggressive way and it builds and builds. I yes. say, you know, anger, you can't see it or touch it or, or weigh it, yeah. but it exists. And if you don't yes. deal with it, it's going to build and build, and then you hit that explosive phase. Once that yes. happens, there's distance between the people. Yes. And as human beings, we need each other. We yes. may not want to acknowledge that, but we need each other. Relationships, for, you know, there are bonds formed. So once that distance is created from that explosive phase, people have that distance, either literally they're out of the house or they, they're just in silence for a while, and then they need to come back together, and that initiates the third stage, the honeymoon stage. Which is just very uh, transient. Which is transient, right? And it's kind of 
usually in most cases it's quite fake in a way. People make promises and I'll never do it again. I'm going to get help this time. Yeah, yeah. They bring flowers and dinners. They even have a affection. There's even, you know, the term makeup sex. Yes. You know, people even, you know, start having sex for the first time in a while. And, you know, that can only last so long. The trying to recapture that honeymoon of the early stage of the relationship, and then you're back to tension building. And I want to say something else about it, Jonathan. Please do. It, um, I think what fuels this, one of the major things that really drives this cycle yeah. is that we need distance in relationships. Even a healthy relationship, you can't be with your partner all the time. Yes. You can't be merged with them. You can't be alike in every single activity and, and preference you have. Yes. You need a certain amount of distance to also balance being in a relationship and having your own life. Yes. So people need distance from each other in a healthy relationship. Of course. You take that distance through verbalization, negotiation. I'd like to go to the gym this afternoon or she'd like to go with her friends. Let's meet up for dinner at 6. No, 6.30 is better. You go back and forth. You talk it out in a respectful adult way, and that's how you take your distance. Yes. With the cycle of violence that I mentioned a moment ago, you're still taking distance, but you're doing it through violence, through yelling, through threats to leave. You're doing it with a big blow-up, and yes. then the distance occurs. Yeah. So another question I have to ask you is, um, most of the time we think or we assume that... Um, men are more violent to their female partners and vice versa. That's accurate, correct, or is it inaccurate? Well, you know, most of, and there's a lot of different studies done from everything that I've come across. Um, the data show that in terms of physicality and aggression in relationships, yeah. men seem to be a bit more violent than women. Yes. Uh, let me say this. It's not a lot, and it's not just a... T let's say two bits more violent than women are in terms of aggression. Women do throw things and hit and grab and push. Yes. But the main difference is that men do a lot more damage. Yes. And you see this if you look at statistics of uh, admissions in emergency rooms. The yes. damage that men do is, is, can be quite devastating. Women don't do the same damage. That's where the real difference is kick yeah. in in terms of men being more of uh, thought of as typically more perpetrators than women. Yes. Okay, well, we're coming up to the second of our two commercial breaks. Okay. So we're going to um, have the break now and come back in a minute and a half or so. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. Legal Shield, total access. Everyone deserves legal protection. With Legal Shield, everyone can access it, no matter how traumatic or trivial. Check out players.buildinglastingsuccess.com and jjbrower.com. Call Jonathan at 805-535-5111. DefeatAnxietyNow.com is geared to help people suffering with anxiety and depression. Intensive, short-term, dynamic psychotherapy helps many people get to the absolute core of their problems and resolve them. Call Dr. Jonathan Brower at 818-707-4557. Interested in investing in real estate, leveraging other people's money? Call Jonathan Brower and he can give you some more information. 
805-535-5111. That's 805-535-5111. SportsPsychologySociology.com can help you improve your ability to excel and enjoy your athletic endeavors. Call Dr. Jonathan Brower at 818-707-4557. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Human Behavior, What a Trip, with Dr. Jonathan Brower. If you have a question or comment for the show this week, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's toll-free, 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to jbrowerphd at yahoo.com. Now, back to Human Behavior, What a Trip. Hi, everybody. Back to the show, Human Behavior, What a Trip. And, Michael, before we go on, um, why don't you one more time tell people your um, your website? Well, my website is um, michaellevitan.com, M-I-C-H-A-E-L-L-E-V-I-T-T-A-N.com. Okay, and they can contact you Contact there. me there, and um, my, my office phone number is on there. Good. And... Uh, I also do a lot of uh, teaching, and as I said earlier, uh, this uh, anger management show I really hope gets off the ground. I think it'll be a good time for it. Yes, I agree. Okay, so uh, what are some ways that children are affected by domestic violence? Well, you know, one of the things that's fairly recent, and sometimes it takes society a while to catch up with what's happening on the ground in the family, so to speak, Uh, is that uh, domestic violence is now recognized as a form of child abuse. And that's only in the last 15, 20 years or so. And it really came out of research that says that the ch- you know, as children develop, it was always thought that they internalize the mother, they internalize the father, yeah. or any substitutes there, that whoever the caretakers are, primary caretakers, the child, so in other words, is let's say, uh, two spokes in this uh, wheel here. One is yeah. internalizing mother. Two is internalizing father. And research has shown that it's just as important, the third spoke in this wheel is that the child internalizes, makes use of, uses it for their development, the relationship between mother and father. So, so that, because that's so crucial and that's fairly recent, the, the, it was always recognized as an important factor, but, not, but it's a crucial factor. So because their relationship is internalized, if they're having violence between them and abuse between them, and the child is internalizing that, the child is being abused. Yes, the child's scared and, and afraid and abused. Right, and now that, and that's finally filtered down to recognition in society, in, uh, in books, etc., and now in the courts as yes. well. So if you're a violent or abusive parent and you want custody of your child, yes. uh, you have to take some anger management or domestic violence classes to, to show that you earn the right to uh, parent your child. How effective are those kinds of classes? Well, you know, they're all different. Uh, you know, I run these uh, kind of groups and classes. So from my point of view, um, <laughs> I think I'm, I'm doing the best I can 
But I'll tell you, in terms of effectiveness, yeah. uh, the, again, looking at studies, yes. there's, a, there's a lot of, um, how can I say, effectiveness in terms of reducing physical violence. Um, and that may be somewhat what's done in the program, uh, the threat of going to jail, again, yes. restraining orders, all that threat hanging over their heads. So physical violence is, there's, there's less recidivism for that, but it's very, it's more difficult to get at the other psychological, emotional factors like intimidation, controlling yes. behaviors, you know, uh, overly jealous behaviors, yes. trying to question the, uh, yes. your mate and, and, uh, and, and, and control them and question what they're doing, who they're, how they're dressed, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's more difficult to get at those more, sort of more insidious because a lot of uh, a lot of uh, a lot of us learn that those patterns in in childhood, yes, and reenact them as adults. Yes. So when you have these classes for people who need help with their domestic violence, do you ever um, hear about them later on and see if they've improved? Do you get any feedback? I do get feedback. Uh, you know, the best type of feedback I get is I get a phone call a few months later, or it could be even a few years later. Yeah. Someone who tells me that they're doing better in their family, or they're not fighting like they used to, or it's totally different, the nature of their disagreements. Yeah. Or sometimes it's happened quite often where these men who come to me, let's say, in mandated court programs, uh, come to me years later for uh, therapy. Yes. They want to get to the root of their uh, violent behaviors. They don't want, you know, they, they, they realize that rather than blame everyone else, you know, they want to address it themselves because, you know, it's no fun to be a perpetrator and a batterer. Yes. You know, the ostensible purpose is to control. But what happens is you wind up being isolated. You could yes. be in a family, have um, your spouse and children around you, but if you're an intimidating person, people keep their distance. Of course. You're walking on eggshells, you're not going to see their real self. You're not going to feel their genuine love. You're going to feel more compliance, fear-based yes. behaviors around yes. you. So what are some of the reasons that people become perpetrators of domestic violence? Well, a lot of it starts as learned behavior. Yeah. Uh, I don't believe there's much of a genetic component to this. Uh, a lot of it's learned behavior that they learn from their own fathers. And sometimes it's, as we know, it's generational. It goes on and on. Yes. You know, you asked me before, I didn't fully give you a complete answer about the effects on children. Yeah, go back to that. And I just want to touch on that for a moment. Children are very much, as I said before, they're affected by the relationship between the parents. Yes. And if you're growing up in a violent home, your world becomes about uh, a, a safety or danger. Yes. And I mentioned before that's instinctual. Yes. So your, your development is very much, there are a lot of delays in development. Your childhood feels robbed from you. Your life becomes more about safety and making sure mom's okay and dad's not going to get angry. This becomes your focus, understandably so. You know, I have a whole list when I teach these courses of the effects on children. And one of them that people always ask me about is there are delays Children growing up in violent homes, delays distinguishing colors. Colors are more difficult to identify. And the reason behind that is your world, so to speak, becomes all or nothing, black and white, safe yeah. or danger. So they miss the nuances. You don't, right. You don't have the luxury to identify, is this blue? Is this 
aqua? Yeah. Is this green? You know, whatever it is, those luxuries, it really translates to things like distinguishing colors. Yes. And there are many, many effects on children. A lot of developmental delays, problems, you know, with sociability problems in school, and of course with, with uh, adult relationships. Sometimes it carries, you know, if people don't treat this, then they're going to carry it into their adult relationships. Yeah. Right. So uh, I was just thinking about how a lot of people aren't aware of being aware of how they experience their emotions inside their body. And I would imagine that the people who are in violence scenes a lot with their families, they can't ever get to those more intimate parts of themselves. Yeah, like you're saying about emotions, the vulnerable emotions. Yes. You know, it becomes... I mean, again, it's, it's instinctual for survival. If you feel threatened... Yes. You know, an animal, a human being is not going to put their neck out in a vulnerable way, neck, so to speak, to yes. feel more vulnerable. You're going to learn to keep those feelings to yourself. You don't want to be vulnerable to someone who's dangerous. So what you do is you mask it. You become yes. what is a child. Children intuitively adapt certain personas to get by and survive childhood in the best way they can. So yeah. if you need to be funny, if that's going to work, uh-huh. to calm the parents, then you'll do that. If you need to be a confidant, they call that the adult, uh, the uh, parentified child, where you start yeah. becoming the parent to the child because that's what you're, you know, you're listening to your mother, you're listening to your father. Whatever you need to do to pacify the parents, yeah. you instinctively do. So your own path to development and who you're meant to be in this world gets very compromised. Yeah. Now, of course, with treatment, you know, we're in the, uh, you know, I know, you're, you know you do the same type of work I do in many ways, Jonathan. Yeah. You know, I, I say, you know, we're in the optimism business. We're in the business of overcoming. We're in the business of bringing hope to people and actually bringing change in their lives. Yes. So, so I well, say all this, but yet yeah. I'm very determined to help people overcome. Yes. And some of them don't get it, and many do, but you can't be batting a thousand. No, no. You know, I'll tell you, the primary thing, whether, you know, you mentioned earlier you treat uh, depression, anxiety. Yes. And I, you know, I deal with that as well. I also, you know, post-traumatic stress, anger management, domestic violence, whenever I'm, whether it's individually or, or in a group. Yeah. For me, the primary ingredient to successful treatment is the relationship between therapist and patient, therapist and client. Yes. Because if they don't trust, if they don't get a sense that you are there to help them, yes. that you have a genuine need, a genuine desire to help them, to help them improve their lives, they're not going to trust you. And if they don't trust you, then you can give them all the anger management tools all the communication tools when you're doing couples counseling, all the good support and advice, and it's not going to really be internalized. So the relationship needs to be one where you have to earn the trust of your patient. So so when you have these classes, do you have classes just for men and then just for women and then classes for both men and women together? No, we don't. Well, the way the state wants it is um, in terms of the mandated programs, it's separate. So I do have a, a women's group. Yeah. And I have several men's groups. 
And um, are there differences between how you approach a women's group of batters and how you approach a man's group? Yeah, it's a good question. Good. Uh, yeah, there there are. Uh, first of all, every group takes on a life of its own. That's the beauty of the group. Yes. That you have people who are very different in terms of personality, temperament, upbringing, different races, religions, etc. And the yes. beauty of the group is when you bring them together and you see the commonalities they have. Yes. But in terms of approaching the uh, the differences, is I find many of the women who are there, and I'm talking about women, a woman's batterers group. Yeah. Many of these women who are there because they committed an act of domestic violence have, have been abu- abused themselves. Yes. So one of the differences is really helping women, empowering women, uh, rather than just strike out at yes. your boyfriend, your husband, after years of feeling abused, yes. to, to have, you know, improve your self-esteem, have more awareness of abuse, uh, pay more attention to your instinct, those red flags. Yes. That people tend to dismiss because they want the relationship to go, to go forward. Yes. Well, so we could all we start to feel that spark of romance, spark of love, spark of sex, spark of affection, yes. all those things. And uh, we, maybe women, sometimes I'm generalizing more than men, want it to go forward. Yes. But we don't pay attention. We dismiss those instincts, those signs, those intuitions we have. Yes. So with the women, it's very much about helping them have healthier relationships and be able to feel better about themselves so they don't stay, they don't put up with that type of relationship. Yeah. So, so, so in that you, sense, there are some differences to how I approach the groups, yes. And then when you have these groups, how many people do you have in each, in each group? Usually. Well, like, for instance, right now my women's group has six, and my men's groups range anywhere from five up to ten even. And then how many weeks will you have the group going? Well, every week. We meet, it's a, it's a weekly um, you know, the programs many are pretty set in the state of California, where we uh, have uh, weekly meetings. For how many weeks, for how many years, or what? Well, it's, uh, if it's domestic violence, it's 52 weeks mandated. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah, it's 52 weeks. It's, it's pretty much most of the states in, the, uh, in our country have 52 weeks. If it's anger management, then it's up really up to the judge. It could be anywhere from 12, 16, 20, 26 for anger I management. It's, it's really a bit different. I see. I think we have about a minute or so to go. Okay. Um, uh, could you just very briefly uh, speak about the class you're having this coming Saturday so people get a sense of what you're doing there because you're doing several things together. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm very excited because it's, it's, it's a bit new. I'm trying to break into some new territories. I've, I've taught about trauma, post-traumatic stress for many years yeah. in terms of how it's affecting our mind, our emotions, our brain. And I find that in studying the brain, I've been doing a lot of brain research as we have all this new technology to study the brain, yeah. and I find that there's so many similarities. What happens in the brain that's traumatized yes. and what happens in the brain that's addicted. Yes. You know, there are major themes that start to take over your life, uh-huh. take over your brain. And yes. I find there's so many similarities, so I'm trying to integrate them. It's really trying to break the mold here, have, see the similarities, the differences, what's the basis of trauma, how does it affect us, what drives us to be addicted, how does trauma early in life or even subsequent to that drive us to an addiction? Yes. And how does addiction function in a sense? You know, we tend to think of the addiction, this is bad, this is bad, but to truly understand, let me just say this, maybe... Uh, time is short now, truly understand something, whether it's addiction or a batter or someone who's violent, 
You have to go beyond good or bad, beyond those judgments, good, bad, legal, illegal. When I'm treating someone, it's about understanding the behavior, what motivates it, what yes. functions it serves for them. Okay. Then if they can see that, they'll be less judgmental and be able to really take a better look at themselves because they're yes. not filled with judgment anymore. Okay, that's a nice way to end the show. Thank you so much for being a guest. I really appreciate it, Jonathan. Likewise, and I'll talk to you in the very near future. Okay, so thank you so much for being on my show today. So that's it for today, folks. We'll be back next week with another show. This is Jonathan Brower saying bye for now. Thank you again for listening today. Tune in every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for Human Behavior, What a Trip with Dr. Jonathan Brower on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have fun experiencing your human behavior. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.